the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This past week, I sat down with one of my best friends from the past 13 years, a friend I met in seminary, who asked me, what would I say to someone who had never heard the story of the Exodus? if I wanted to share only one important thing. We puzzled together for some time before we finally landed on this. There is a people in bondage, in every way imaginable, who cry out to whom they know not, and God hears them and responds, liberating them. In doing so, God becomes their God. This sentence is, to be honest, a little bit of a cheat. It says far more, I think, than one important thing. The book of Exodus opens with the people of Israel crying out under the weight of their enslavement in Egypt. They are living under the mighty hand of Pharaoh, building his empire, serving Egypt's needs, fortifying infrastructure, making its economic reality possible. The power of Pharaoh in the story is near total. It is on Pharaoh's command that the people work long days under harsh circumstances and overseers, and that their work forming bricks becomes more and more difficult, exhausting, and dangerous. It is on Pharaoh's orders that the Israelite children are thrown into the river. His is a power over life and death. Its totality is called only into question by those who dare to act in defiance of the orders of Pharaoh through their fear of God. And these activities of defiance join the cries of a people, cries against their abuse, against the destruction of their lives and community. But their cry is offered not in any particular direction. This is something that I think is so interesting because I had always assumed that the people cry out to God and that their cry for help is answered because of that. But that that isn't what's said. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This isn't the protest or cry of a people who know and trust in God at this particular moment. It's almost passive. 
people whose cry without direction or anchor makes its way to God. And while we follow Moses to the burning bush after this, and we know that the God who is acting is the God of the Israelites' ancestors, the story suggests that God out in the desert and the people groaning under slavery are beginning mostly as strangers who need to be reacquainted. And this is emphasized in the scriptural narrative. The first thing that happens after Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush is that God gives Moses a set of signs to perform before the elders of Israel by which they will know that Moses has been sent by the God of their ancestors. And while Moses' demonstration of their signs leads them to believe that he has come to them from a God who wants their liberation, the next several chapters see Pharaoh doubling down on his no so much so that the people of Israel actually ask Moses just to go away. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. You've put a sword in his hand to kill us. At this point, even Moses doubts why God has sent him, wondering aloud whether God has made things worse and liberation impossible. Pharaoh's control over the people is so ironclad and his heart so hard that it takes several additional chapters of back and forth between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, a series of plagues, including the death of the firstborn, before Moses is finally sent away with the people of Israel. And even then, it's not a smooth road. The people are pushed up against the edge of the sea, with Pharaoh's army following them, and they wonder, why on God's green earth have they been brought to this place? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. These are people in bondage in every way imaginable. These questions will become a theme. In what is about to happen right at the edge of the sea and in what is to come, the people of God are going to learn repeatedly what it means for God to be their God. The pillar of cloud in which God's presence abides is a cue for how difficult it is to understand the reality of who God is. While God will be known to the people in the opening of the sea, the identity of God will not be grasped or controlled or understood easily. Though the work of this God is just as undeniable to the people of Israel and to Moses as it is to Pharaoh and his sunken soldiers. The miracle of their escape, it's obvious. The hand of God pushing back the sea into two walls, one at the left, one at the right, the ground beneath their feet dry, the ground beneath the chariot wheels of Pharaoh's army somehow a hindrance. The people finally on the other side of the sea, in freedom and safety, dancing and singing with tambourines. The story of Israel in the Exodus is so determinative for the people of Israel and so determinative for the identity of of God that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage in Egypt must be one of the most oft-repeated phrases in the Old Testament. 
through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Psalms, and the prophets, even as we venture into the world of the New Testament, we have Jesus and his family fleeing a murderous leader to Egypt and then coming up out of Egypt, calling the mind of readers and hearers of this story to the parallels between the saving work of God in the Exodus and in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The story is paradigmatic for understanding the identity and work of God in history. At my first vacation Bible school at Holy Family, our theme was the Exodus. And right here, we built a like 12 to 15 foot tall brown paper Sinai right over the altar. And in the old library, we spent five days painting two 12 foot fabric banners with the words, you shall be my people and I will be your God. These banners were blue to look like water, not blue as some have suggested (laughs) to be Duke blue. They are cobalt, in fact. They were blue to look like water and hung from the rafters in the parish hall, flanking the space. And all week, our children heard all of the stories of the people of Israel and the Exodus and the wilderness wandering from beneath these two banners. And then these two banners became a fixture of every vacation Bible school to follow. As we worked through the period of the judges, the monarchy, the prophets, and the life of Jesus, there was always this image, these these two blue banners. Because not only was going through the Reed Sea determinative of Israel's identity, but all of the other works of God in Scripture are continuous with the God who was shown to be in it. The liberation of the people of God in the Exodus becomes a sort of framework by which we understand the whole work of God. Whether it's the standoff between Pharaoh and the abuse of Israel, the powers of Rome that crucify Jesus, or the powers and principalities that seek to order our lives, even today. We are always proclaiming the victory of God, who is known in this story of Israel walking through the waters of the Reed Sea on dry ground, led by God in a pillar of cloud. This is why our own liturgy of baptism calls on this story in the blessing of the waters. Through it, you led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt and into the land of promise. There is a people in bondage in every way imaginable who cry out to the God they know. And God hears them and responds, liberating them. And in doing so, God becomes our God. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.